welcome into Natchez Glenhouse Stories. Now, you, all of you know, I rarely talk about personal stories. You know, it's me having a family is irrelevant, people. It's got to do with gardening and horticulture and botany and the science of plants and the natural world. Right? Wrong. This story, uh, for those of you that don't know, I have a 14-year-old daughter uh, here in the state of Tennessee. And for the last, uh, give or take, uh, five months, we've all been in this global pandemic thing. And I have made some observations in the last two years that as someone that likes to approach the world of plants with this incredible balance between science and woodland fairies, that the science side of it has been sort of going to the wayside. We're approaching so many things with just confirmation bias. We just talked about this on social media the other day in an Instagram Live that I did. You want to do something. You want this to work, but there's sciences that go into it. So I get it. We all want something to happen. And now strike 2020. Global pandemic, challenges, and science seems to be relatively quiet in some of the conversation. So I reached out to my friend, Dr. Megan Freeman, who I couldn't think of a, a better person when she was brought to my attention to talk and have this conversation about this thing called coronaviruses. Megan, I, I know your background. I know you've, I've, you've been working in coronaviruses back in uh, MERS as well at Vanderbilt, which is ironic because now you're up in Pittsburgh, uh, but I'm here still in the middle Tennessee area. L let's start with the real basics here. Before our current situation, of COVID-19 and the global pandemic that we've all been experiencing and continue to live through as we speak, what did we know? Uh, how much research was being done on coronaviruses as a group, as a family, as a class of virus? That's a great question, Steve, and thanks so much for having me as your guest today. I'm really excited to dig into this topic. Um, I spent almost 10 years in Middle Tennessee uh, doing work at Vanderbilt, and it is a, a place near and dear to my heart. So coronaviruses are a family of viruses that uh, infect all different types of animals, including humans. Uh, and we first learned about the coronaviruses that infect humans in the 1950s and 60s. There are four respiratory coronaviruses at that time that uh, came to be known, and they were the coronaviruses that really caused the common cold. They were a little bit challenging at that time to work with because we didn't have uh, all of the technology that we have today, and some of them were really difficult to grow in the laboratory setting. Um, but as kind of techniques evolved, uh, they became a little bit more popular. Um, my mentor, Mark Dennison, who works at Vanderbilt, has been studying coronaviruses in his laboratory for about 30 years or so now. Uh, and it was a relatively small field until the year 2003. And in 2003 uh, is when we saw the emergence of SARS-1, mostly in Asia, um, but it was such a significant pathogen that all of the scientists that had been working on either these human coronaviruses or uh, coronaviruses are actually a pretty big problem for pig farmers and also uh, have some, some cat coronaviruses that can cause a lot of trouble. So a lot of the scientists that were working on those other coronaviruses switched kind of over to SARS to use their expertise to help fight that pandemic back in 2003. Let's get into this because I think this is where we start branching. And I understand people, I'm not asking you to be a you know trained virologist, but here's what I am asking you to do. 
put your thinking caps on for a moment. Could you break down for us? And I think this is one of the real problems is when we talk about a coronavirus, that we have this virus that is adapting to replicate itself, to use your cells as a host. Can you just sort of break us down on like what defines a coronavirus as opposed to other virus families that are out there? So viruses in general cannot replicate by themselves. They all have to have a human host. Uh, And that's one of the things that makes viruses distinct from other microorganisms like bacteria. Um, So coronaviruses uh, as a family um, are distinct in a couple of different ways. One of the main ways that we classify viruses is by the type of genetic material that they have. So humans use DNA as their genetic background, and there are some viruses that use DNA as well, but coronaviruses actually use RNA, which is just a different chemical molecule um, that holds their genetic information. That's one of the ways that we classify them. And then also um, by size, coronaviruses are one of the larger family of of this type of RNA viruses. Uh, They exist actually right up at the top of the genome size, which is something that virus nerds get pretty excited about. Um, But one of the reasons that they can do that is that they have uh, more error checking abilities than some of the other RNA viruses. So that's another kind of characteristic that makes them pretty unique. In the early days of this, you mentioned that other coronaviruses were like considered common cold. And I say this a lot, Megan, I'm going to go all plan on here for a second. (laughs) People will say things like iris, right? They'll go like irises, you know, irises, despite the fact it's a huge taxonomic family and that there's hundreds of cultivars, cultivated varieties of just iris germanica, a species. Do you think that hurt us a little bit in the conversation of coronavirus early days? Because there were people sort of saying, okay, well, it's like it's like the cold, you know, it's a cold. But without the perspective that people like yourself and professionals had that, hey, hold on a second. Just because it's in this family does not mean it's the same thing. So I think that this is one of those places where there was probably a pretty big difference between the public perception and what the virus community was thinking. So this SARS coronavirus 2, when you compare the genetic sequence of that virus to the other coronaviruses that exist that infect humans. So I mentioned the four that cause common colds. There's also uh, the first SARS that came out in 2003 and then a virus called Middle East Respiratory Syndrome virus that emerged in the year 2012. Um, And genetically, this new SARS coronavirus 2 is most similar to SARS 1. Uh, It's about 85% the same when you look at its genetic sequence. So this made those of us in the virology community nervous that it might behave more like SARS and less like one of those common cold viruses. But you're absolutely right to uh, people in the public that we're hearing um, about some of the manifestations of this disease, knowing that coronaviruses can cause the common cold would make you think, you know, this is a coronavirus. Maybe it will behave like that one. Uh, And one of the things that has been, I think, so challenging about this particular coronavirus is some people do have pretty mild symptoms. Um, But the other side of that coin is that other people can have very severe organ failure and death. 
So it's a very difficult virus um, as far as contact tracing and making sure that people stay away from each other in order to prevent infections, because the perception is that, you know, if I'm in a low risk group, maybe it won't be bad for me. You mentioned that Mark Dennison's lab at Vanderbilt was in this small community of people that were studying this. And then we've had SARS-1, MERS as well. Did it, when you first became, where were you personally? When was your first with COVID-19? When did you personally first become aware of it? Was it it along similar timelines to the most of the nation? Were you on it a little bit earlier? Where were you personally at? So I was paying pretty close attention in the early winter. I definitely remember tracking the outbreak and um, monitoring on uh, some different websites that were tracking the numbers in January and February. Um, And I think the thing that's been a little bit different with SARS coronavirus 2, at least how I was feeling at that time, um, is when SARS-1 emerged and when MERS emerged, uh, they were pretty geographically restricted comparatively to this virus. So I remember thinking in February, oh, you know, I bet this is going to be another one of those viruses that I will watch from afar, but it will not make it to America. Uh, And it turns out that I was very wrong. Is there any linkage between, you mentioned 85% of the genome sequencing being similar to SARS-1. Has there been research on SARS-1 that has been applicable to what we're seeing with this, or is that differential large enough where a lot of that research wasn't as useful in studying this? That's a great question. Um, So there's been a lot of information that we learned from SARS-1 that has been directly applied to the study of SARS-2. And I think the best example of this is um, we've been hearing a lot in the news Recently, and there was um, recently also in the scientific literature, the information about the Moderna vaccine trial, Uh, that vaccine uh, that was partially developed with uh, with work in Mark Dennison's lab at Vanderbilt and many other groups. Uh, But it used the knowledge that we as a scientific community had gained through the study of both SARS-1 and MERS in order to make um, some kind of key early decisions about how to formulate that vaccine. Uh, So we wouldn't be in this position that we are now where that vaccine has already gone through some safety trials and is recruiting for the next phases uh, in order to be farther along kind of the safety and manufacturer pipeline. Um, If we hadn't done that background research, we would still be probably farther away. Could you also take a second, because this is something that I know exists, and I'm curious of your opinion on it, between the differences between the research community and then the clinical community in the world of medicine. Have you been um, concerned through this process? Have you been encouraged by maybe some of the work that was being done in the research community? And do you think that has gotten to the hands of the people in the clinical positions? What's your perspective on how that's gone in this last four or five months? So the transition between those two places is sort of where I live. So I um, did both an MD and a PhD degree at Vanderbilt, which means that I see patients. I'm a pediatric infectious diseases doctor. Um, and I also do bench research studying viruses. 
Um, so I am kind of right at that crossroads where I am able to kind of see what someone in the basic science community is, is talking about and the same on the clinical side and do a little bit of translating in the middle. Um, and I've been really impressed with how everyone has really tried to work together to solve this massive global problem. Uh, I think one of the, the best examples is the drug remdesivir. Um, was a, a novel compound that, um, again, was work that came out of Mark's lab um, to study that remdesivir, the compound, was very effective against every single coronavirus that they had tried. So, of course, when they heard about SARS coronavirus 2, one of the first things they wanted to do was to see if remdesivir was able to uh, inhibit the replication of SARS 2. And it was very effective. And then there was this, you know, whole chain of events that led to that drug being available throughout the world to try to help some of the most severely affected patients. So I think that's a probably the best example of a basic science finding that got translated into the clinical arena uh, really quite quickly. Which I have to think someone like yourself is happy to see that. Would would you agree that that sometimes there's a delay, a lag between the two communities in, in some cases? Absolutely. Um, and a lot of these things, if there is urgency, then it's uh, maybe a solution that someone is looking for, uh, which is the case in this situation. Um, it's also one of those situations where you never know what kind of basic science might end up being important in the future. Uh, so it's really important to support uh, scientists and make sure that we are studying the best possible thing so that we'll be ready when the next situation like this arises. Which leads us beautifully into this, Megan. Here's one of the things that concerns me, kids. Anecdotal talk versus scientific method talk. Now, granted, do I say woodland fairies at least once a day? For sure. Okay. But when it comes to situations like this, this is not the time for woodland fairy talk. This is the time for, for science, for people like Megan, for her colleagues to get together. These are the voices that we should be listening to. Have you as a professional, clearly your position on this is, and perspective is super unique. Do you get personally frustrated? with the amount of just information that is out there that is a thousand percent strictly anecdotal and opinion-based and is not based upon any piece of research or data at all. I do get a little frustrated, um, mostly because I just want everyone to be making decisions that are going to keep them and their family safe. So I really have, I think, the public health best interest at heart um, and I'm trying to use every possible platform, which is why you know we're having this conversation today to disseminate uh, scientifically backed evidence based information about this pandemic. Um, you know, people across the world have been getting an education in virology that they never knew that they wanted or needed. Um, and I see it as one of my jobs to try to do as much education as possible around these sorts of things. Um, and it's tough, you know, even in my own family, I will get uh, text messages saying, Megan, is this right? Is this credible? Like the, the way that this video was presented to me looked really reputable, but they said some things in it that I'm just not sure about. Will you look at it for me? Um, so I know if that's happening in, in my family, I, it's happening everywhere else too. 
And I think it is, it's before we started recording, I was sharing with you, you know, I, I see it in this really niche lane of, you know, plants and botany. It's not really niche, you know, let's be honest, Megan, the entire world's made up of living plant organisms, but the, the knowledge base out there for people is clearly shallow, even in plants, which is something so many people interact with on a daily basis. So when we, we branch into this lane of virology, even more shallow for folks, do you do you think the the scientific community at large, right, both in the clinical and in the research, have you found um, news outlets reaching out to you, traditional media sources reaching out to you? How have you felt that interaction has been? Because I, I guess I would say from my perspective, Megan, I am often surprised that maybe we're not hearing more. And I don't know if that's always the fault of the scientific community, but more so the platforms that are out there giving the scientific community an opportunity to talk like we are today. I think that's absolutely a great point. Um, there are opportunities there if you seek them out, but it's also pretty easy not to do that. Um, and it's it's one of these things that, you know, academia uh, doesn't necessarily reward, but as uh, a researcher who you know is often funded by federal funds, uh, I kind of view it as the obligation to the taxpayer that has funded your grant for you to be able to explain your science to them and tell them uh, what it is that you're working on and how you hope to better human health. You touched on something there that I think is of great concern to a lot of people in the world of research that the awareness doesn't lend itself literally to federal dollars and grant money. Has that been, you know, even in uh, Mark's lab and Dr. Dennison's lab, has, has that been something that pre-COVID-19 was even difficult, was obtaining research funds and grants to be able to move forward with this kind of work? It all depends on and so the, the national governing body of uh, the research dollars, for the most part, is the National Institute of Health. Um, there are certainly some foundations that support bench research as well, but that is kind of the main governing body. Um, and there's a very es established process for uh, how to apply for these grants. They're reviewed by uh, committees of scientists, and it's really a very rigorous and very challenging process. And depending on what the national budget is for the NIH, it uh, makes a difference on how many of those grants can be awarded. And that means, you know, people who have had labs established for decades and also people that are just leaving training and just starting out on their own. Um, they're in kind of different categories of grants that you can apply for. Um, but the budget has to get shared amongst all of those groups. So I think it's really important to think about. Um, I, I like to use this example. So there was actually a bat surveillance study that had been funded for many years uh, through the NIH. And the closest cousin of SARS coronavirus 2 genetically, even closer than SARS 1 that we had talked about, uh, was identified in a bat surveillance study uh, several years ago. So if we were able to do uh, more of these kind of high-powered studies looking for viruses in animal vectors that we know have the potential to cross over into humans and become the next pandemic, that would be a really valuable study to support. So sometimes we don't 
exactly know what it is that we're going to find that becomes so important. Do you think that awareness is really what the gap is, right? It's the gap in the, the public, uh, in the elected officials that the public votes into these positions, uh, social media pressure right now in a 2020 kind of world moving forward. Is that the gap? Is that what, what is missing? Is people valuing the sciences sometimes that go into these things so we can have people in field, in lab, in clinicals working on these things? I think that your point about the crosstalk would be so beneficial going forward. I think you know, one of the unique opportunities of this pandemic is to share with the public, you know, the, the world's biggest story is a science story. Um, so share with them kind of the the work that's done behind the scenes and how it is that we do what we do. And I think that the responsibility goes both ways. So I think, you know, researchers need to be doing their best to educate the public and to teach them what they're working on and to answer questions that they have about science uh, when science is what they're making decisions about every day. Uh, and on the other side of that, um, I think that it's important for the public to recognize how important it is to uh, talk to your Congress people that basic science research and funding is really important. Well, and I think you just brought up the point that if if three years ago, Megan, we would have gone up to a group of people that were very concerned about budgetary spending and you said, hey, we're giving monies to this person out there researching bats. It would have been like, what? What are we? Why? Why are we? Right. That would have probably yeah. been a reaction from people. How does this relate to human health? You know, it's an expensive study. What is it that you're going to find? Um, but, you know, we we found the closest cousin to SARS coronavirus, too, which ended up, uh, you know, kind of devastating the global economy and it's our complete way of life. Is that in, again, you can go personal view on this one if you like, Megan. Yeah. Do you, sure. do you think that this is just sort of sometimes we have a bit of a myopic view of the world, right? Our, our view of uh, the sciences is sometimes very limited in that we don't see these connections. You know, I often talk about there's this horrible virus, by the way, Megan, that attacks roses. It's referred to as rose rosette disease, but it's actually a virus. Okay. And it's carried by a mite that we knew very little about. It's a mite that floats. It's an aerified mite, an aerophytic mite. And that's the vector for the virus moving. And I think people have just not known, like phrases like that even, vector, right? It all sounds maybe a little scary, maybe even a little futuristic at times. Is that a concern for you that maybe in, in a world where information is literally sitting in our pocket on a magic phone, that we've somehow maybe lost connection with the bigger, broader world and how it impacts and how the sciences play into that broader world? Well, and you and I were talking before we got started about how uh, some bits of social media can really become kind of an echo chamber for your own views. Um, so try and branch out and who you follow, right? Maybe follow the NIH, maybe follow the CDC, maybe follow your favorite science, uh, either journalist, uh, NPR shortwave is a super great one that has a very small digestible science story every day, uh, and try to expand your perspective and your social media feed. Cause I think we end up reinforcing our own opinions a lot of the time, uh, which is very easy to do in that forum. 
but, you know, we talk about vectors of disease in humans all the time. Ticks and mosquitoes are kind of the most common, too. Uh, and in a in a Lyme disease prevalent area where I live, I talk about uh, ticks and Lyme disease all the time. So I I feel the pain of your roses. No, exactly, Megan. Trust me. And the ticks are all over the place, too. Or we're, we're done. The world is hanging by a string, Megan. Most people don't know this, but we'll save that conversation for a later date. <laughs> well, so- and also there's this um, this idea of one world, one health, uh, which has kind of come into, I think, favor in the last couple of years, thinking about how our interactions with the environment, so pushing into the habitats where bats live that carry some of these viruses, and then the person that is in that area, you know, has maybe pushed the bat into a more neighborhood sort of area where it might interact with a kid. Uh, and then the kid might be ill. I'm describing to you the theory for how Ebola arose. Um, so everything is connected. And the, the faster that we realize that and start to pay attention, I think the better off we'll be. There's also a part of science that I don't think the science community does a great job with all the time of educating people that we know a lot. We know more than we did, but there's still so much we don't know that I feel like a lot of times when I talk with people that are very, very, very far removed from it, that they feel like our exploration is over, that we're done. Like, we got it, Megan. Look at the magic phone in our pocket. We got it all, right? We, we know everything. We've explored the world. We've done it. We've, we've seen it. We've seen it. Done there. Been there. Done there. Got the t-shirt, right? However it goes, Megan. So do you feel that that's something that, you know, when you talk about that, like the, the, the things, the connections, that there still is a tremendous amount that we don't know. And at times I look back, despite a lot of historical horribleness, but I do think we have lost a little bit of that sense of wonder and exploration that allows us to discover things. Oh, as an early career scientist, this makes me so sad to think that we think that we've got it all kind of conquered. You know, when they invented penicillin, uh, they thought that we were done with the whole field of microbiology, um, which turns out couldn't be farther from the truth. So we're at a place now where we have dozens of antibiotics and it's a constant race between the bacteria that we try to target with our antibiotics and the antibiotics that we have uh, to see who can outsmart and outlive the other one. So the bacteria are um, becoming more adapt to chewing up and spitting out said antibiotics all the time. So we need to be kind of constantly looking a step ahead to see what's going to be next uh, in order to continue to have effective drugs. So there are so many areas of science that um, was kind of my best bacteria health crossover one uh, where there's so much more to learn. And even with SARS coronavirus too. So the speed at which the study of this pathogen has occurred has been mind boggling. And I think a lot of it is that there's so much pressure to do that quickly because of um, what problems it's caused. But also, you know, everyone wants to help. So a lot of people that weren't studying coronaviruses are helping study this one and develop tests to use in the hospital and to develop faster tests that we can, you know, know in a quicker turnaround time if someone's infected or not. Um, But we still have a ton more that we don't know about this virus, including kind of the things that people make entire scientific careers about. Uh, One of the topics that I think is most interesting with this virus is 
the virus is predominantly the same from person to person, but people can have very different experiences with their infections. So why is it, especially for me, that children have such mild comparative disease to adults? What is it that makes them different? And that's not something that we entirely understand yet. You mentioned that, and we have to talk about this because this is such a, a brewing topic, literally as we record this, um, is children. So the statement, I think, is made a lot by people. And I've heard it. I just heard it today. I was listening to a, a podcast that has nothing to do with any of these subjects. But for some reason, Megan, they were talking about it. And they're really... <laughs> And it's one of those, it's a very popular podcast. So when they said this, you know, I, I, I get very upset and I only can yell at my wife about the subject. And she goes, here he goes again, getting upset about something. They emphatically said, kids, children don't get COVID-19. True oh. or false? Um, that is false. Children do get COVID-19. Uh, and I will tell you that the reassuring part of this is that for the most part, they tolerate it very well. Um, and the studies that have been published, however, there have been a minority of patients in the child age range that have died or have had severe disease. It's very small fraction, but they do exist. Uh, but there are some other issues when we think about having a child who is infected with this coronavirus um, go home to their families and infect their parents or their elderly grandparents or maybe uh, their neighbor who is immunocompromised because they have a kidney transplant. And those are all higher risk people that even though the child doesn't have many symptoms or isn't very ill, they can still spread virus to others. Uh, so that's a pretty significant concern. And then Another concerning finding in children is that, again, this is in a minority of children who have come into contact with this infection, but there is a fairly serious inflammatory syndrome of children associated with this virus called multi-system inflammatory syndrome of children, or MIS-C, uh, and that can lead children to be in the hospital, be in the ICU, needing organ support, um, and can cause damage to the vessels that feed their heart. So there are some pretty serious outcomes of children getting this infection. As someone who has studied this, do you get concerned at all? Because I think we get we get down to uh, a delicate conversation of like sample size and data. I hear a lot of people, they will downplay some of the numbers that they have been given, right, as talking points by whoever, you know, the, the, the thing in big, you know, that pushes out the ticket, wherever they get this information out, I don't know. But when it's they say things like, well, 1%, things like that. Are you concerned that sometimes, like when people say kids don't get coronavirus or 1% of people only, that they're not even doing the math, Megan? You know, that, that, that 1% is still a, a, a bad thing, that these aren't like positive. You know, they're almost trying to like upsell bad news to me sometimes. Yeah. Well, and especially when the numbers of people infected are so large, the 1% grows larger and larger. But I think as an individual, it's really easy to say, oh, I would happily do something that has a 99% you know, risk of success, right? I guess risk isn't the right word, but um, you know, a, a greater chance of an optimal outcome. So I think when you think about it individualistically, it seems like maybe it's not so big of a risk. But when you think about how many... Uh, kind of hundreds of thousands and millions of people now have had this infection, 1% starts to be a pretty big number. 
is there when we, we talk about kids and clearly this is something that you are completely involved with that I, I also get a feeling here, Megan, and I asked you before we recorded not to dumb down anything. So I'm going to be the one that presents sort of the dumb down question here. And the, the phrase asymptomatic is used a lot. And I do get a little concerned that sometimes when people are hearing asymptomatic, that they're hearing that as this is someone that cannot transmit the virus to other people. Because I think that's one of the other narratives that is associated with children is that they are asymptomatic. Could you just quickly clarify definition, what that means? That's a super important point. So um, we can kind of divide people into two camps. There are people that are uninfected. So have never come into contact with this virus are not ill. And then there are people who are infected. The virus has uh, gotten into their mucous membranes, their nose and their mouth. It has started to replicate in the nose and the mouth. And any of those people who have had that experience are able to transmit virus to other people. The thing can that makes can it I so stop you right there? Yeah. I, mm-hmm. You know, huge credit to you, Megan, for using the phrasing that I think would have been more effective here. Infected, <laughs> uninfected. I, I think when we went down the slope of symptomatic, asymptomatic, it made it sound like there were gray areas to this a little bit. You know, it's like, well, it's not too bad. You got a mild case. Well, you don't have any symptoms. You're fine. Move on about your day. Does does that concern you? Because in you explaining it, you explained it in a way that I think is the most appropriate. But do you think maybe some of that, that the terminology, the jargon almost derailed it and gave people this impression that, well, they're asymptomatic. What's the big deal? We continually come up with topics that I think are going to be studied by sociologists for years. Uh, in in my area, the kind of uh, opening of society was referred to as red. You know, everyone's on lockdown. Yellow, it's getting a little better. And green, like you can go out and do a lot of different things, but the world is not back to normal. So I think that green maybe wasn't the best thing to use, right? So a lot of these words, I think, can get us into a little bit of trouble. Um, but so, yeah, I think you're right. It is easy to be misunderstood with some of those words sometimes. So we have to be really careful about how we're describing what's going on. So in the bucket of infected people, uh, there are a lot of different manifestations of how the disease is experienced by the person. So if they don't have symptoms, never have any symptoms, but still can transmit because they're still replicating virus in their nose. We call them asymptomatic because they don't experience symptoms. Uh, The next group of people is the pre-symptomatic transmitter, which means that they have been infected. Today, they do not experience symptoms, but they will in the next day or the day after that. Um, That's been, I think, a a very kind of high-risk group for transmitting, um, it seems, based on the data. And then there are people who, just like you're saying, have mild illness or have severe illness end up in the hospital. Um, But all of those people are infected and all of them are contagious and can transmit to others. If there is someone who is not showing symptoms, do we know at this point how long they're carrying the virus for and how long they're they're potentially uh, able to transmit it to other people? 
This disease is thought about as a range. So this virus has a very long incubation window or incubation period. So if you are coming into contact with another person who is ill, then the incubation period is between zero and 14 days, which means any day in those two weeks, you could develop symptoms. Uh, but on average, most people will experience symptoms on around day five. Uh, as far as when someone is contagious to another, uh, we think that it is possible to transmit all during that first two weeks of illness, um, but it's more likely in the beginning of the illness than it is at the end. And that has to do with the greater amount of viral load that's replicating in the person's nose and uh, respiratory tract prior to when their immune system has started to get things under control. You just hit on my very next question, Molly. Viral load? Viral uh -huh. shed. These are phrases that people had no idea existed until five months ago. True. Could you walk us through, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, I'm going to make a statement then lead into the question, but if I'm wrong, say, Steve, that's wrong. Okay. That the virus, or viruses technically, do not self-replicate. They rely upon a host cells to do so, to make more that's of themselves. Mm -hmm. That because of that, this is a situation where viral load matters, right? The, the amount of them that are transmitted from person to person matters. Is that true? That is probably true. Um, so let me go through viral load and then I'll tell you why I say only probably. Um, so we measure virus in uh, a way that's much more known to people now, the PCR-based test. Um, but essentially, it kind of measures the the number of copies that are exist in a sample. Um, but an, a kind of easier way to think about it is so one virus will be able to get to a cell, use the receptor. The one for this one is called ACE2, and that's kind of a lock and key mechanism. So if the cell doesn't have that receptor, the virus is not able to get into it. It will go inside that cell. It will turn it into a virus factory, and then that cell will produce thousands, if not tens or hundreds of thousands of progeny or baby viruses that can then go on and infect neighboring cells in the body. Um, so the viral load is how many viruses there are. That's just how many we count. And to give you an idea, this is often uh, measured with an exponent. So 10 to the seventh, 10 to the sixth, which means a million or more than one million uh, virions or individual virus particles. So viral loads can be quite high. The, we know that someone with a higher viral load is more likely to transmit to another person than a person with a lower viral load, um, but it's impossible to do the study to say how much really is required to infect another human because this is not a virus that we are going to volitionally, um, even in a volunteer study, because the outcomes are so variable, uh, dose people with virus. That's just not a feasible thing that we can do. So the infectious dose of how many virus particles is required to infect another is unknown. Which is really interesting. Now, is that something that in the past, how would that have been studied like with other coronaviruses or any viruses? How would that be studied in a, in a lab setting historically? With a volunteer study. So um, especially in some of the other coronaviruses that cause only the common cold and do not have more severe manifestation, uh, the kinds of studies that they would do earlier kind of on last century 
uh, is to infect humans with different amounts of virus and see who gets sick. And that's how you would determine that. Um, that is not a study that we would do with this virus. Uh, and it's challenging to make similar sorts of um, hypotheses about how um, doing that study in animals may be uh, helpful or not helpful. It's still probably not exactly the same as what would happen in a human. We hear about antibodies all the time, right? You even have people that are like, and it's been relatively sad to see. We're saying, well, I just want the antibodies and just get it over with. There, there's been a whole crowd of people out there, sadly, who think this. Could you walk us through what we know about that process? And I guess I would ask two questions here, and they're both complicated, so I should probably separate them, Megan, if I was being a good host, but this is a bad host question. Okay, I'm ready. That A, when someone has antibodies to the virus, what's actually happening? What's, what's being inhibited there? Let's just start there. So when someone says they have, I've got antibodies, or they show antibody positive in a test, What's happening in a, a cellular level that's preventing the coronavirus from doing more damage to them? Okay, I'm going to have to try to paint a auditory picture. So if uh, we look at a picture of the virus, um, or we imagine what it might look like if it were much, much bigger, we might imagine a golf ball with a bunch of golf tees sticking out of it. And those golf tees would represent the spike protein. The spike protein uh, gets its name because it looks like a spike, but its main job is to help the virus attach to its cellular receptor and then mediate the events between the, the virus and the cell that allow the virus to enter the cell. So if that spike protein is incapacitated, the virus will not be able to get into the cell. So the goal of many of the vaccines um, and also of your own immunity that you develop uh, is to have a protein, an antibody that circulates in your bloodstream that would be able to recognize that golf ball with the spikes on it and bind to it before it was able to bind to your cells, therefore neutralizing it uh, before it's able to make you sick. So when people test positive for antibodies showing that they have these proteins is that are we definitively aware that those people now have immunity to COVID-19? I think this was a more complicated question than you necessarily realized. So what I described is the goal of an antibody response to this virus. Part of the challenges have been uh, that there are I think something like 400 different antibody tests that have been developed. They all have different qualities, including some of them measure antibodies to that spike protein that I just told you about, but some of them use other protein targets within the virus that may or may not be as helpful. Uh, so it's difficult to interpret if you receive an antibody test uh, on a couple of those different metrics. So every test that's developed um, has a different set of qualities for how good it is. So what we want to know is if I were designing an ideal test, it means that if I had someone that was positive for antibodies, it would detect them 100% of the time and it would never detect them if they weren't there. That would be a perfect test. Perfect tests don't exist, uh, which means that we have to weigh, it's called the sensitivity and the specificity, what I just explained to you. Um, but we have to weigh the attributes to the, of the test 
to know kind of how good they are. Um, so the challenge right now is that if someone just calls me and says they had a positive antibody test, I don't know which platform it was run on. I don't know how reliable that testing system is. Uh, so that's problem number one. And then problem number two is we're still learning because we're seven months into this, uh, how long an antibody response after a native infection lasts. And unfortunately, what it seems like is coming out in the literature is people that have more severe presentations of disease make longer lasting antibodies than those that had mild or asymptomatic infections. Um, so we're still learning more about that. But at this point in time, I would not say that anyone that had a positive antibody test is necessarily protected. Could you also speak, because this was a question someone actually asked via social media, about the phrase herd immunity? Would love to. So herd immunity is really the idea behind vaccines. So in order for a vaccine to be effective, the idea is, um, let me back up. If I use measles vaccine as an example, measles vaccine uh, is taken when kids are young in a series of two doses. And because the measles virus is very stable and does not undergo a lot of change, and because this vaccine creates antibodies that last for your whole life, it's very effective at preventing a measles infection. Measles, by the way, is the most infectious virus that we know about. It is, um, based on numbers that I've seen recently, probably three to five times more infectious than SARS coronavirus 2. So you can just imagine kind of how that would be uh, if we didn't have uh, such widespread adoption of this vaccine. But the idea is if you vaccinate enough people and the number is usually, and it depends from virus to virus, somewhere in the 60 to 80% neighborhood of people, um, then if someone is infected and walking around at Disney World, then they might come into contact only with people that have an antibody response that's able to neutralize the virus. So then there is not a transmission event uh, or a chain of transmissions because so many people, the herd, um, have effective protection. We're going to go through some quick ones here as we wrap up. What do we know about, I know this was a talking point early on, it's come up in, in flashes, but what do we know from studying previous coronaviruses in relationship to weather and climatic? I know there was an original thought that maybe the coronavirus would somehow be more transmissible in cooler weather versus warmer weather. Is this fact or fiction? What do we know about that? I think it's fiction. Uh, we've been seeing it rage through the desert climate of Arizona just as readily as it was able to do in the winter of New York. Which I think is really important. You know, Megan, it almost feels like because you have some of these things, because we talked about the echo chamber, they seem to have very long tail, <laughs> Yeah. right? That they, they, they yeah. don't go away. And you're sort of like, okay, is this, are we going to stop with this nonsense? When is, when is this going to be eliminated? Have I you mean, the plan that you're able to grow in those two climates are probably not the same. Yes. It, it, well, and I, I think it's also, we're at this place where what I also wanted to ask you, because clearly, you know, pediatrics is, is what you do on a daily, that are you concerned with sort of where we're at right now from just, uh, and this isn't really a polarizing comment on my part, but are you concerned that parents 
who aren't in your profession have the information when it comes to kids and kids going back to school and, and how their children interact with the world around them, that they they actually have good information? Does it concern you that they do or they may not? School opening is going to be such a hot and important topic in the next couple of weeks. And I know um, I'm involved locally in that sort of um, education and decision making as uh, people that are my colleagues are around the country. Um, But it's just so difficult in a situation where we have more coronavirus cases than we did when, you know, we thought we were at our peak in March uh, to think about how to do this safely. So I would say to the parents out there, you know, it's all about a kind of risk mitigation strategy. Um, I think it's important for kids to be in school, but I want us to be able to do it as thoughtfully and as safely as we can. Uh, And that's going to involve a lot of working together on the part of the scientists and the school administrators and the parents and the kids. Do you feel that it's almost been conflated that there's this position that's created in the conversation that, well, kids have to go back to school, that I don't think anybody's against that. No one's saying <laughs> kids shouldn't be in school. Yeah. yeah. That we're, we're having uh, an inverse conversation about it, that it's there's not a <laughs> anti-school group in this particular position, but there are people that have concerns with how it I happens. Think, yeah. I think people are pro-school, which is great. Um, I am also pro school, but we have to think about very carefully uh, how we're going to do this and keep our community safe. It's not just the kids, right? It's the teachers. It's um, people in the school that might be high risk. It's people that live at home with the student that might be high risk. And, you know, it's my patients with um, organ transplants and who are fighting cancer that need to be able to go to school in a safe environment. So there are a lot of players here that we got to make sure that we think about the best interest of everyone. You mentioned locally you, you, you're working there in an education capacity to try to maybe make some better informed decisions. Is that something from your colleagues and your peers and, and people that you know that have studied and lived this for more than the, the previous seven months, but you know all the way back, that local municipalities are consulting with people like yourself across the country to come to these kinds of more educated decisions at least? Uh, Yes, I've heard about this from my colleagues in a bunch of different areas across the country. You know, I can't say that it's happening universally, but uh, certainly we are wanting to be involved in these decisions because we want to help make things as safe as we can. I'm going to give you one wrap up question here, Megan. So we move through COVID-19, right? We're we're on the other side of this. Um, Vaccines have been developed. Therapeutics have been improved. We, We know far more than we do whenever that date is. As someone who, as you said, you know, tiptoes and, and works in between the layer of clinical and in lab and science, what what's the next step for things like this? What would, in an ideal world, do do people use this as a moment of reflection and say, "Hey, we need to stay on top of these things. We need to to do the research." What do you think if we if we get on the other side of it? What are the the walk away that we should have from a scientific clinical perspective on this? I think the first one would be, um, man, that's going to be such an accomplishment scientifically to get this under control. Um, and it's really going to be a, a global effort as it has been so far. Um, so that's, I think, the recognition of that is thing number one. Um, and then trying to think carefully about what's the next problem that we need to solve. 
And do we do it together like we did with this one? Um, or is it kind of back to the a, a little bit separatist model of um, there are a variety of groups that study different things? Um, and, you know, a little bit, some uh, researchers kind of main projects have gotten put on the back burner because of SARS coronavirus, too. So I think on on the other hand, there will be a bit of a sigh of relief that they can go back to the important problem that they were already trying to solve. Um, but what I'm hopeful will happen, uh, as has kind of been a theme of our talk, is that uh, the science communication in a bi-directional way really increases after, during and after this pandemic. I think that's the key, Megan, because like what you just said, you know, there's, you know, as, as today we speak about coronaviruses, there's a host of other viruses in the universe that are, could be equally as important one day to the conversation and to the, the human consciousness. So trying to to bring awareness to this is, have you noticed just in your own interaction, I'm clearly you said, you know, relatives, family members, and friends have been texting you. I, I've got to imagine that suddenly you've gotten real popular. And how do we keep that, <laughs> Megan? Like, how do we keep that? that? That's really my goal. Like, how do we keep you know, people like yourself and other researchers and other fields, how do we keep that, you know, I don't want to use the word momentum because it almost gives a positive sense of this, but <laughs> you're the voices that we need to be listening to. I know Crazy Uncle Larry is entertaining on Facebook. I understand that, people. Crazy Uncle Larry, he's awesome on Facebook for a laugh or two, but probably not who we should be listening to. How do we keep that momentum, Megan? One of the great initiatives that I've learned about recently is called Skype a Scientist, uh, which I think is kind of a great outlet for scientists to be able, this is specifically for uh, for different classrooms, um, but it was very popular during the shutdown because you were able to have, you know, a Zoom meeting or whatever with a whole classroom full of people and tell them about the squid you study, right? Um, or whatever it is that you are passionate and excited about in science. I think the more that we do this more frequently uh, and also to even very young kids, um, I got to do a kids virology session with, you know, the youngest kid was four and it went all the way up through 13 or so. And it was so fun. And they asked the best questions. And I think exposure to scientists when maybe you're from a family like I was that didn't have any scientists to uh, to aspire to be uh, is really important. So any of these kinds of bi-directional sort of opportunities I am all for. Uh, and I'm hopeful that maybe I won't be this popular after the pandemic, but maybe still a little bit popular so that I can keep doing this. ties of these old abandoned rails wondering about the stories they could tell I think of all the weight I carry on my own and I try to empathize with all they bear there's something about the sun that brings me back to life it's just like staring in your eyes And I can't tell you what it is I'm doing here All I know is nothing's felt so right So let 
for you 